0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Welcome to Fox. here are your headlines today. Unicredit CEO Jean-Pierre Mastier resigns after clashing with the board of the Italian banking giant over his restructuring plan and pressure to buy troubled lender Monte Paschi. OPEC interrupted the oil cartel delays its meeting with other oil producers after failing to reach an output agreement, sending oil prices lower. Shares in Zoom sink in late trade as the video chat app says the surge in demand during lockdown drew costs higher of setting a forecast-beating set of fourth-quarter earnings. And Philip Green's fashion empire Arcadia falls into administration in one of the most high-profile casualties of the pandemic so far, with reports it could become a takeover target for Fraser's m or Next. To one of our top corporate stories this morning and Jean-Pierre Mastier has resigned as CEO of Italian banking giant UniCredit. After four and a half years at the helm, his sudden exit comes amid a dispute with the board over the bank's restructuring plan and takeover strategy. Let's get out to Claudia for more. She joins us live from Milan with more. Claudia, there's been a series of comments that have crossed and it seems to be contained in a statement that Mastia will now step down in April. There was a heated conversation that took place with the board all over his Team 23 strategy. So just walk us through these developments and why they're so significant.
2: Well, first of all, there has been a growing tension with, uh, within the board regarding uh, the position that ultimately Jean-Pierre Mousquet has had since the beginning, since uh, taking uh, this post in uh, Unicredit, which was, we move forward without acquisitions, without uh, mergers. Uh, now, this has been building for months uh, because this acquisition, potential acquisition or merger with Monte di Paschi di Siena, the troubled Italian lender that you remember was failed out in 2017, um, has uh, not obviously uh, at all been Um, Interesting to uh, Jean-Pierre Moustier, who has really attained to what his objectives were, which was uh, to transform, which was actually the last plan was called Transform 2019, um, which worked mostly actually on selling assets and improving the bank's balance sheet. So uh, this is not seen by him as a valid uh, acquisition or merger. So this has been sort of in, on the back burner for the last couple of months, but the tension built up in the last few days as Team 23, which is the new uh, plan, has been laid out. So uh, the official line is that uh, the new plan is not in line with the board's view. So he will be stepping aside. He said he is not going to renew in April. He's willing to stay on until a successor is found. Uh, just to get back to the Monte de Paschi di Siena a potential deal, which is Seems to be at the, uh, you know, uh, sort of at the core of this whole reasoning. Uh, remember that just weeks ago, um, uh, Pier Carlo the ex economy minister who uh, actually oversaw the rescuing of Paschi in 2017, has been uh, tapped for new president. He's now on the board and will become chairman of the board uh, at the next uh, board uh, at the next. Uh, Change so that will be in April. So this is showing that the the ideas that they do want to go forward with this Monte dei Paschi di Siena deal, uh, also because of the pressure coming from Intesa, the other big Italian bank that has actually moved in terms of acquisitions, made a big acquisition this summer uh, with the, the purchase of UBI. So uh, also looking at their share prices, Unicredit has been left behind. They're trading at a 66% discount to their book value versus the 45% for Intesa. So certainly that sort of challenge between these two big banks is putting pressure on Unicredit to move forward. So overall, though, B- Moustier has done uh, quote unquote, a very good job in terms, as I was saying, of sticking to his plan and doing what he said he was going to do and reducing the NPLs and uh, you know raising the core tier one for uni credit. So uh, it's uh, mostly a, a sort of politics situation, uh, mostly though unexpected, as I was saying, that has been uh, some tension that has been uh, heating up, but this uh, unexpected uh, decision that came last night—you uh, know—is just another indication that with the, the further pressure on the banking sector and the idea that Intesa has sort of taken a, a, a bit of uh, more of a lead, could be the reasoning behind this decision uh, from Jean-Pierre Mostier. Remember that he was also being tapped for the head position at HSBC just a few months back and had not taken that post that he was rumored to be, uh, you know, being considered for. So it's still, you know, of course, to see who will uh, uh, take that post and that will make us understand whether this potential MPS merger will be going forward. Karen?
1: about the challenges in the European banking sector all year, and one of the challenges is the very low profitability. So the fact that Mastia didn't want to add to the cost space makes sense given the the challenge in bringing back profits into banks. I I want to just move on to who could be the replacement because a couple of names have been cited, but they seem to be very much local names. So the board not looking too far from the home market of Italy.
2: No, and also these are some of the names that have been, uh, you know, you know, sort of come up whenever these situations have arisen in the past. So uh, it's really too early days to talk about potential, uh, you know, n- names of who could be taking that post. Uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing many more of them uh, in the next uh, few days, but uh, still too early to tell what kind of direction they will be taking Uh, in this, uh, you know, in this substitution of jean pierre Moustier, which will be actually very important, you know, based on who it is, we will better understand that this is sort of going to be the team that is going to go in that direction. And, you know, as, as I was saying, uh, you know, about uh, Moustier being, opposed to this MPS deal. He wasn't entirely opposed. He said he would do it if it were cost neutral. As you were just mentioning, right now, this is not a time to be taking on uh, a situation that could be uh, not cost neutral, according to a, um, you know, I I guess the type of management style that Mustia has always had, which was very uh, fiscal, so to speak, you know, very uh, proper and following what were the correct and appropriate financial moves that, that would make sense to reach his objectives and sort of away from all of the politics behind the whole consolidation of Italian banking that you will remember is, you know, has been a long time coming and is still far from being complete. So we will be seeing uh, more of these, uh, you know, sort of mergers between these Italian banks. And it looks like Jean-Pierre Mustier just doesn't want to have a part in, in that because it could have an effect on the Oh, I don't
1: Claudia, thank you very much for running us through the latest. Uh, while you've been talking about Unicredit we've had developments around Credit Suisse fairly really big moves in the C-suite this morning as we talk about the European banking space. There was an announcement early this week when Lloyds had said it had picked Charlie Nunn as the current head of wealth and personal banking at uh, from rival HSBC to succeed Antonio Horta-Ozari when he steps down next year. Uh, Ozari of course has been at a decade at the helm at Lloyds. Now we have announcement crossing this morning and this Time that uh, we will hear from Credit Suisse that uh, Antonio Horta Ozario is proposed for election as chairman of the board of directors at the AGM on the 30th of April next year. So, Credit Suisse now tapping the outgoing chief executive of Lloyds to become its new. Chairman, so that news from Credit Suisse around uh, what it is proposing at this point. Also, some other news flow this morning uh, Credit Suisse and MBIA, which have been in a legal dispute in New York since 2009. uh, Judge presiding over the the legacy case has issued an order requiring both parties to submit estimates of damages. Credit Suisse believes that it has a strong ground for appeal. It's taken provisions totaling $300 million uh, in prior periods in connection with this case. They also expect to increase their MBS-related provisions as a consequence of the order, and they will provide an an update on the impact on the fourth quarter of 2020 in due course. But uh, the huge news really around Antonio Horta-Ozario proposed for election as chairman of the board at Credit Suisse. So we are seeing lots of moving pieces around the European banks uh, at this point in time. (laughs) you <laughs> I'm going to take you to the U.S. market action that we witnessed in trade yesterday as we look to close up what's been a stellar month for November. If you are watching the show yesterday, we are talking about 11 to 13% gains for some of these major markets. But it was a downbeat finish, as you can see, with a little bit of portfolio reshuffling, a bit of window dressing to close out the month of November. Nine-tenths down for the Dow on the S&P 500, Dow clocking up its worst day since about the 20th of November. That market pushing down by just over four-tenths of a percent, so a modest decline we did see a fresh intraday high on the tech-heavy Nasdaq before it also turned south, following the rest of the major markets south. So across the board, we did see a reversal. Also worth noting, one of the areas of the market where you've seen a lot of appetite and even the stronger gains in the broader indices has been on the Russell 2K as small caps. That was down 1.9%. So you did have that element of just closing out positions for the end of November. So a fairly significant slump. It's worst day since the 28th of October. I want To show you what's taking place on the bond markets, there's been a huge focus around uh, some of the actions on Capitol Hill. U.S. Congress uh, has started a two week process to secure government funding to avoid a possible shutdown that saw the bond market slightly weaker yesterday. The yields positive 0.84 of a percent on the U.S. Uh, 10 year as a result, 0.14 on the two year. So a little bit of movement uh, across the yield curve. Also, just worth noting in the context and the backdrop, you've had dollar under pressure. Uh, if you take a look at what what happened for the U.S. dollar on Tuesday closed at its worst month since July. So that's been the backdrop. You've seen that softening in the uh, foreign exchange in the, the greenback, which has been an undercurrent for some of the yield weakness. But yesterday was a focus on the politics for the bond markets. I want to show you Asian markets as they've kicked off to a brand new trading month. And it's been a stellar start, as you can see. Bounces right across the board. A lot of news flow, and in particular around China. And what we've been watching in the mainland market has been this continual recovery And it's flashed up again in the latest business survey today, showing China's factory activity accelerating at its fastest pace in a decade in the month of November. Very strong catalyst for the Chinese market, but also for Australia, up 1%. Uh, The Reserve Bank of Australia weighing in as well today. The central bank effectively saying that the country needs more fiscal and monetary support for some time to come. So signalling that the taps will remain open to support the Australian economy. But uh, right across the board, you're seeing gains to Japan, a bounce of 1.3%. Let me take you to the opening calls here in Europe after what was also a weekday yesterday as investors uh, shuffled those portfolios here as well to close out the month. We've seen a very strong trade here, 20-plus percent gains for French and Italian stocks over November. But this morning we look like we will be off to a higher note again. 140-odd points caught up for the FTSE MIB, a slightly positive too. You can see on some of these markets on the DAX, 62 to the upside. In context, we're down roughly one4 1.5 odd percent for some of the major markets. Markets yesterday, Jeff. And let me say good morning to you.
0: Yeah, very good morning to you, Karen. I'm glad after what are we? 12 minutes into the program, my technology has finally decided to join the fray. So good to see you this morning, and good to see our audience. And let's get into some of these other stories here because it's very interesting. You're talking about the markets at the moment, and there does seem to be this um, these two positives here: The, the progress we're making on vaccine news, and the other one around the Biden team and the prospects for uh, something that looks like uh, almost permanent stimulus at this point. So let's just talk about Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Uh, We are going to get some uh, testimony today. Jerome Powell, the Fed chief, will warn US lawmakers that the economic outlook is still, quote, extraordinarily uncertain. A preview of today's testimony to the Senate Banking Committee shows Powell speaking of major challenges despite positive vaccine developments while defending the central Bank's lending programs after Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin cut funding last month. Powell is said to give two days of testimony alongside Mnuchin as part of a hearing on the pandemic response. Cares Act and interesting how much he's insisted that all of these programs should be kept in situ as uh, Secretary Mnuchin has begun to wind some of them down. Well, a US government watchdog is claiming that jobless data is inaccurate and many claimants are being underpaid. The Government Accountability Office says the Labor Department's numbers were miscalculated because of backlogs, repeat counting and state discrepancies. The body also warned of pandemic aid payouts at the end of the year um, and that they will push many people below the poverty line if indeed they don't come. President-elect Joe Biden has announced his incoming administration's top economic posts. Janet Yellen will be Biden's official nominee as Treasury Secretary. Nira Tandon was named as Director of the White House Budget Office. If confirmed, Tandon would be the first woman of color to lead the OMB. Cecilia Rouse was nominated to chair the Council of Economic Advisers, while uh, Wally Adomio was uh, tapped to serve as Janet Yellen's top deputy at the Treasury Department. But, Karen, I think as far as uh, the markets are concerned, and I know we've talked a little bit about this because it was signalled so much in advance, it will be here confirmation of Janet Yellen, I think, that will provide that added crutch uh, going forward. The market, I feel, already front running the idea that what you've got now is a, a very dovish setup, both at the Federal Reserve and at the Treasury.
1: A couple of points. Uh, what we've heard all along from President elect Biden is that he's very good at building consensus. And in one of his major announcements here, he's picked a candidate that nobody really has major issues with. And that's incredibly challenging as we talk about Treasury secretaries. In the past, uh, there's been all sorts of criticism. But uh, Janet Yellen, uh, widely regarded by her peers in economics, widely regarded by politicians, widely regarded by the market. So uh, a fairly significant tick here for Biden in his selection of Janet Yellen. What um, of the other points, too, uh, Janet Yellen brings with her a very human aspect to economics and this is important as we talk about recovery from a crisis that has hit so many people so the the fact that yellen has A very specific approach to economics, not just taking a look at the numbers, but looking at how it plays out for individuals. That's going to be quite key, I think, on the messaging from a very top position. Uh, Also, just worth noting, too, on one other aspect, regulation, there is a a lot of question marks around what type of approach a Biden administration would take to financial regulation. Well, Janet Yellen, in her new position, will uh, be the head of the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which apparently gives her enormous amount of power to also row back some of the uh, deregulation that's taken place under President Trump. So if she thinks that there are systematic issues, financial stability at risk, as we talk about an increased level of debt across corporates, private equity, other asset classes, then Janet Yellen has oversight over this particular area of the markets, Jeff.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a very interesting point. I mean, at this stage, I think um, all authorities are going to tread very carefully when it comes to altering the broader environment, regu- the regulatory environment that uh, particularly the banks are operating in at this stage. A very small acts can result in outsized uh, reactions. And I think as, as we've seen here in Europe, you know, the uh, attempts to build some form of uh, safety net uh for you know too big to fail banks or or banks that uh, go out of business leaving a trail of um uh, of depositors uh, unhappy depositors in their wake there have been all these uh, attempts to build in an insurance program but a lot of the european uh, banking ceos not happy where they feel that ultimately they are paying a lot uh, to provide uh, insurance uh, across the sector for other organisations, not the ones they run themselves. So a little bit of peek about the way that the regulations have been drawn up here post the financial crisis. I think... Um, Take on board absolutely what you say, but I think early doors, I would imagine there'll be some caution around adjusting the banking regulations or the financial regulations at this stage. One of the other stories that's been interesting is the waxing and waning of the positivity around the oil price. Uh, We know we're in the midst of OPEC plus discussions at this stage. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the fatigue perhaps that some of these OPEC uh, powers and Russia have with current restrictions on supply. We'll come back to you on the OPEC story in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody. You're watching Scorebox. Let's talk a little bit about the direction for the oil price and how the price is revolving around the OPEC plus conversation. OPEC and its allies have postponed a second round of talks until Thursday amid sharp divisions over output policy for 2021. Dan joins us live now with more on this story from uh, Dubai. Dan, is it is it just a case here that some of the larger producers... Would actually like to see how production and demand recover post the lockdowns. Why this uh, reticence about setting a new agenda on 2021?
3: Well, that's a good point, Jeff. And look, we often see theatrics coming into these really important OPEC meetings, but these negotiations are not going well. Yesterday, during the course of the conversations, we saw OPEC failing to reach agreement on this decision to extend the production curve of 7.7 million barrels through the first quarter of next year. And they've also made this decision to delay the OPEC plus consultations until Thursday, essentially buying them more time to nut out an agreement here. We've also heard some very sobering comments from Algeria's energy minister, who told the group coming into the meeting yesterday that they face immense challenges at the start of next year. And he also said that the positive vaccine news that we've been hearing won't have a material impact on the oil market until the second half of the year. Listen. The shock to the oil industry is massive and its severe impact
0: will likely reverberate in the years to come. We must be aware today that market condition in 2020 are likely to continue during the first quarter
3: 2021
0: and that we must be cautious
3: if you look at the reaction that we've seen in oil prices it's clear that traders haven't reacted positively to this disagreement among the opec group about how to move forward but there is some good news here and that is the most bearish scenario is unlikely to eventuate at the same time the most bullish scenario is unlikely to eventuate either But still, the expectation is what markets have largely priced, and that is an extension of this current agreement, 7.7 million barrels being rolled over into the first quarter of next year. Whether we'll see a two- or three-month extension remains to be seen, and of course, whether we see some kind of tapering of that agreement. Will it be 7.7? Well, that's still under consideration. Either way, these producers still have to have significant talks throughout the course of the week, and of course, there's a lot riding on this as well. If they fail to reach an agreement, we are going to see around 2 million barrels of oil being added to the market from January, which could really undermine the nascent recovery that we've seen in prices throughout the course of the year. Back over to you.
0: Dan, thank you for that. Let's bring in Alex Booth. Alex joins us this morning from Kepler, he's head of market analysis there. Um, Alex, as we look at the um, key actors in this ongoing dance, Um, Who is it that's really resisting the continuation
4: of the ongoing cuts at this point? Hi. Good morning. Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, it's it's the usual suspects that we were talking about. Ultimately, um, at the start of year, before we had this, uh, before we had the situation in the spring, um, there's a lot of pushback from Russia, um, and more recently, there's been um, a lot of pushback from the UAE. Um, there's new discoveries in the country. There's been a lot of uh, capex um, in the country, and they want to ultimately make the most of that, um, but. We've I mean, saying that Russia kind of wants to is pushing back on this is uh, they have actually been kind of following the agreement quite well their pr- exports through November were pretty much flat with um, October whereas in other countries we've actually we have actually kind of seen uh small increases some of them places like Libya where they're kind of they're allowed to increase and other countries where they should be kind of still capping their uh, their production and exports anyway.
0: As we look at the uh, headline price here and I mean we 've been in this sort of forty five fifty dollar a barrel range now recently, and I think some of the oil producers may actually be pleasantly surprised that we 've managed to get back into this kind of level uh, what is what is your expectation as to how that price will evolve uh, through the end of the year and into early next year here as all the positivity around the vaccines continues to drive other ra- risk assets higher?
4: Yeah, I, I think there's there's likely a, a natural cap, um, which comes in the form of the US producers. Um, ultimately, if we introduce... Um, Kind of significantly more uh, production um, at the moment, or kind of over the course of the next three to six months. Um, I think that's going to be met with pressure on the demand side, which is just continued to underperform on a global basis. There are regional kind of variations in that, but I think when you start to kind of get up to the 50 level, you will start to see uh, more production coming out of the U.S. Um, ultimately, that's going to be pushed into the international markets, and that's I think that's going to keep a bit of a bit of a price cap there.
1: Alex, just talk us through how brutal this current uh, second wave has been for the oil market because we went into lockdowns in various different countries, more restrictions. And we thought once we came out of the lockdown that we'd have more normal patterns that would emerge. But that's not been the case coming up to key holiday season. So what does that mean for the oil market as uh, key leaders sit down to debate the backdrop for energy?
4: Yeah, I, I think anyone sitting here in Europe is uh, is feeling that uh, completely. Um, I think the data that comes out of the U.S. Um, in terms of the Thanksgiving demand is going to be a good precursor for um, for the rest of December, kind of certainly across Europe. Um, the the measures um, that are being put in place to kind of to limit uh, travel and so on, and also the personal decisions that are being taken um, by people across the market. I think. At the moment we we are in a kind of fairly stable position, um, so demand has improved. Clearly, uh, things in Asia um, are, uh, are much better. Um, if you look at, say, crude imports into OECD Europe, quite a bellwether for what's happening in the COVID environment or post COVID environment. Um, we have increased imports over the last few months. However, we're still down just over a million barrels a day in terms of crude imports versus Q1 of this year. So I can understand fully why there is such kind of contention within OPEC+, Plus to, because depending on which data set you're looking at, you can really kind of cherry pick your, uh, your data to say, OK, well, it's a much more constructive market. Ultimately, uh, we've built so much inventory onshore this year. We're up uh, just about 284 million barrels uh, year on year by the end of November in terms of our tracking. Yes, we have drawn down that crude that was kind of has been sitting on the water for so many months, but that drawdown has slowed down. So we went from September being about one and a half million barrels a day of oil coming off the water um, through to November, where that's just under half a million barrels a day. So any significant increase in production here as kind of discussed by various members of OPEC I think are going to weigh heavily on the market at this point in time and certainly in through the rest of winter where it's hard to see any significant demand recovery in the western hemisphere at least
1: Alex, like, so just quickly, we've had a discussion on markets about the very quick recovery in some areas of uh, asset classes where you've seen a full pricing and a recovery effectively, but not in the oil market. We're still about, what, 15 odd dollars off where we started out this year. What's it going to take to get the oil price back to that level?
4: Well, I, I think the oil market is different. If you're looking at, say, equities where the oil market is a futures market, if you want to, uh, if you have the expectation that oil is going to recover um, through the spring of next year Well, you trade that contract you don't trade the january contract because you think that demand is going to be better by june essentially and so the structure in oil market is essentially giving us that signal we, we were discussing earlier we flirted with backwardation um, last week that's now come off into contango where the kind of future prices are higher than current um, and that's really how the demand situation is is going to be expressed because ultimately, any increase in the absolute price, as I was saying earlier, is just going to incentivize more production when we don't need it, basically.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com.
1: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.